0: This is Erased. I'm Colette Bauer-Zinn. And this is Lisa Johnson. Two Black moms bonded by bluntness, tenacity, and an unwavering commitment to creating communities of support. Every Thursday, we're exploring where the intersections of education, race, and culture collide, dissecting interracial issues to help you navigate and thrive, despite being marginalized.
1: Welcome to another episode of Erased. Thank you for joining us. I'm your co-host, Lisa Johnson, and I'm sitting here with...
0: Colette Bowers in.
1: We're so happy to have you back with us for another episode. This one is for the record books.
0: You know, this season on Erased, we've had a lot of time to explore the black app movements in depth. And in our last episode, we were joined by Brian Platzer, one of the authors of a weekly homeroom column in The Atlantic. And he chatted with us about his response to a letter written by a concerned white parent, who worried that her child's school was now focusing too much on social justice and race. The question is, where do the schools fit into these conversations, and how do they feel about it?
1: Today, we want to continue that conversation and discuss much more with the president of the National Association of Independent Schools, Donna Oram. NAIS is the largest nonprofit membership association of independent schools that works to unite and empower through thought leadership, research, creation and curation of resources and direct collaboration with education leaders. Donna served as NEIS's Chief Operating Officer for 11 years before becoming president in November 2016. Prior to joining NEIS, she served as the Vice President for Products and Services Development at the Council for Advancement and Support of Education CASE and as Associate Director for the American Association of University Women. She holds a B.A. in English from St. Joseph's University and attended graduate school at the University of Maryland School of Journalism. Donna, thank you for joining us.
2: Oh, it's quite a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So we like to kick things off
1: always asking our guests, when was the last time you felt erased, not seen, diminished, made to feel invisible for whatever reason?
2: Such a great question. I would say when I first became president of NAIS, I actually am the first female president of NAIS. And you know, if I would do something well, I think occasionally people would say to me, I'm sure I learned that from one of the males that I worked with along the way so you know it felt a little bit like as a woman <laughs> you know I could not bring some of those gifts on my own um, it doesn't happen as much anymore but I felt as a woman I was constantly having to prove myself those first few years as president
1: I can understand that so first question Tell us about the NAIS. So this is kind of a selfish question uh, for me. I know the NAIS provides resources primarily for independent schools, administrators, and teachers. But you do have resources for parents and students. I want you to tell us a little bit about that. And I say it's a selfish question because I find myself on your website quite a bit. And I'm not an administrator or a teacher. So I'd (laughs) like for you to talk a little bit about that. Tell us how that's evolving and how all of this trickles down to the student experience.
2: Okay. You know, ultimately, that's what it's all about, is the student experience. So as an organization, we've evolved a lot, although we work primarily with heads of boards of trustees. We work with other administrators in the school. What we like to do is to say we work with the school in the issues of the day. And I would say that even though we haven't don't have a lot of resources for parents. I think that's going to grow over the years. We have a parents section of our website. So first and foremost, we try to make sure that parents understand what is an independent school. The other thing we started doing, and now this is probably 10 to 15 years ago, we felt that sometimes parents get a lot of pressure in areas like colleges. The race about what college you go to and how you get in has just become so much more intense. So one of the things that we've tried to do for parents is to tone some of that down and to bring it back to, you have to understand your child and actually drown out a lot of the noise that's out there. So we produced a lot of parent guides.
0: Are there are there any of those resources but, for parents specific for parents of color? in independent schools?
2: Not yet, but that is, I think, where we're evolving right now. We've long had an Office of Equity and Justice at NAIS, and it was, for many years, very program-oriented. But we thought, how would NAIS be different, and what would we do differently if, at our very core, our values, our mission, and our vision for the future was based around diversity, equity, and inclusion. And it wasn't an easy conversation. We really pushed at each other for a while because independent schools have the ability to make a difference in people's lives in ways that perhaps we're not today. Um, we serve so few students. So we stepped back and said, what needs to change and what should we be doing differently? And that's when our work moved from programmatic work to systems work. So, we started this work about a year ago to look at what brings community well-being and what detracts from it. And so, we looked at all the elements which are stakeholders like parents, students, alums, board members, and we started working with schools and we we actually conducted a pilot with 26 schools where we had them come in and actually map where there were systems of oppression in the school and where there were systems that drove some students out, created anxiety and uh, situations that drove depression and self-harm among students. We're just at the infancy on that, but it's key that parents are a really important part of this journey.
1: Now you're speaking my language. <laughs> I have to ask. Can I just interrupt you really quickly? Of sure. course, I have to ask this. You mentioned issues earlier. Where is the Black at Instagram social media movement and all of this from a timeline perspective? Where does that hit and how did how did you guys feel about that relative to this um, work that you've started at some point?
2: I would say that that was instrumental to us moving to a systems approach. Mm-hmm. Because obviously, reading those posts was painful, very painful. Reading the stories and the experiences, I think most schools thought they were at a different place. So I think it was a wake-up call that they had not made as much progress as they thought. That was instrumental in NAIS, stepping back and saying, what should we be doing? Are we really making a difference? And... You know, we're a membership organization, so we ask ourselves, how can we make a difference? What are the ways that we can be in the conversation? The work that we had actually started before that, which um, before the Black At moment, which really uh, also led us on this uh, path, we partnered um, with a guy named Joe Feldman, who had started a program called Grading for Equity. And he had long studied grading and to try to understand its effect and outcomes. And, you know, I think if you would ask so many teachers, they would say, you know, I've thought about my grading. I feel like I am treating all of my students equally. But he breaks it apart to say not only is what you're doing treating students differently, but the effect the cumulative effect this has throughout their lives is really quite unbelievable. It can take a student off a path and put them on another path. So, you know, we started partnering with Joe to offer an institute um, and uh, work with uh, schools individually to really dig into this and that work along with the Black at movement, made us realize that we had to dig deeper as an association and that the systems work would help us to, first of all, understand, in addition to grading and discipline, you know, what are other systems in the school that work together to create oppression? So what and- are,
0: what's the work that you guys are doing to, to nail down what those systems are? Because A while back, you said that people were shocked at how far they hadn't come, even though they thought they had. And I would push back on that and be like, duh.
1: See, but no, I think (laughs) I think I could see as as an individual school, I could see them thinking they were further ahead. I think to me, the aha moment was, I think the realization that collectively as schools that we'd not come as far. No, you disagree with me?
0: I absolutely disagree, (laughs) considering that we know that, like we've said many times before in this season, that many of our independent schools are celebrating around that 50-year mark, coming out of Brown versus Board, which many of them were created or starting to thrive in. So to look up in 2022 and hear the things that they are hearing, when people say surprise, I'm like, no.
1: But I think that speaks to how little we've been talking about it very publicly. But what do you think, Donna?
2: Well, I think it's a good point. Um, We represent 1,700 schools who are really quite different. So I would say different schools approach this differently. So, you know, we have everything from schools that were founded three or 400 years ago probably around white privilege and tradition. And then we have schools that were founded as anti-racist schools. You know, every school met with that information differently, I would say. Some were surprised. I think some were not surprised. And
0: And that's the piece that I wish people would talk more about instead, you know, what do you do when you're not surprised? How do you name that? And and what do you di- do differently moving forward?
2: And that's where I think schools get stuck sometimes. Yes. That is my observation. It's why we got into this work. Because sometimes I feel like when they see a very big problem, it can create a little bit of paralysis, you know, how to move forward. And so How we got into this systems work was to think, well, what if we figured out a process that every school could use very much individually for them in their context to figure out what a leverage point was, uh, where they could get started?
0: So let's talk about the people approach, because we're in a people crisis right now. So on the ground, we've got our people. We've brought up the Black App Movement, and now the term woke has become a curse word. And there's the woke (laughs) movement where folks are upset that schools are focusing on diversity, equity, and inclusion and race and everyone in between. So how do we get at the people right now? What's NAS doing for and with the people?
2: I am a huge fan of John Powell at UC Berkeley, who heads the Center on Belonging. In his experience, when schools really try to look at racial justice they often start with curriculum and end with curriculum and it really is a people problem not a curricular issue because if you can't change Mm -hmm. the minds and hearts of people it doesn't really matter what you do And when I look at what's happening today, you know, I feel a little hopeless about it. But, you know, I'm always reminded of something that someone said to me very early in my career. When the work is important, the work gets hard when you're in the middle. I think it's uh, Rosabeth Moss Cantor refers to it as the messy middle. When everything feels like a failure. I think that there are a lot of good intentions in schools, but we may not have dealt with the people issues. We may not have brought people along. I feel like we need to build cultures that are based around empathy. And I think that we haven't done that work. And also, I think there has to be less fear about people deciding they don't want to be part of your community anymore you know there is a lot of fear that students will walk away or donors will walk away or anyone will walk away and i don't know that there's a way through this without just being very intentional about this is who we are this is what we're doing and if it's not where you want to be then maybe this isn't uh, the right school for you. But I
0: think making those types of clear statements, like we can all agree we're in the messy middle, right? (laughs) And you said it's time to move the ball forward. So what role is NAAS playing in helping their member schools move the ball forward? And is NAS willing to get to those statements of the like, if if you can't get on board, then you can go your separate ways?
2: I can't tell schools what they're going to choose for themselves. I can tell them that this is where you are and to persevere and that's what we're trying to do. In fact, one of the things that we are just finishing that we'll see if it's a catalyst or not, we decided to put together a scenario planning kit for schools to really show you the impacts of staying where you are. What is that really going to mean? If you say, we are really gonna choose to be who we've always been, we don't wanna ruffle any feathers. But for any action, there's a reaction. Um, For no action, there's a reaction. And so what we're trying to do through this is to spell out for schools, if you do nothing, you're probably going to end up in a place where you don't want to be. So, this is just one of the ways we're trying to move the membership forward because one of the things that I am always looking for as a membership association is how do you keep people in the conversation? Because if they're out of the conversation, I feel like that's a failure in its own way for us. So, you know, we keep on experimenting with ways to have this conversation.
0: Is there support that comes with those scenario planning kits? In my mind, I see great disaster with people trying to navigate them (laughs) without proper... Um,
2: I have to be honest that we probably don't have the wherewithal to support Mm -hmm. 1,700 schools individually. What we're probably going to do with it is offer some webinars or tutorials to help schools through that process.
1: I don't want to put you on the spot, but I have to ask this because you just so (laughs) eloquently spoke to the fact that you're trying to push schools along the right path, and yet you have the delicate balance of being a membership organization. So is there such a thing as a bad member school, a bad partner?
2: (laughs) We've actually talked about this and fought about it in our board. And it was probably one of the hardest conversations that we had, you know, as an organization, you declare your values, your mission and Uh, your vision. And we actually had a number of people come in to push us in various ways to think about this. And, you know, the question became, do you move schools forward through programs or through policies? So policies, for example, might say, if you are a school that doesn't do X, you are no longer part of the membership. Mm -hmm. And so we had a spirited conversation about that because, you know, is that the best way to go? If X schools leave the membership, you're no longer in conversation with them. You no longer have the opportunity to influence any kind of change or right. talk to them in any way. Or do you do something where, through the programs that you offer, the initiatives that you launch, schools self select and say, This doesn't seem like a comfortable place for me? And, you know, I get lots of pushback. And, I try to listen to what people are saying. It doesn't stop us because I think, you know, we are on the path that we are on the path. But I also think about what might we do differently to bring that school into the conversation to begin to change
0: hearts and minds. So, have you guys considered a both and with policy and procedure?
2: So tell me what you think that would look like for a membership organization.
0: Not the tight line of if you you don't do X, then you can't be a part of the organization. But the goal is to get to X. And here are the things that are in place to help you get to X. And if you can't get to X by X amount of time, then we must part ways with the organization.
2: Yeah, that actually is on the table. I mean, we've talked about that, particularly issues around sexual orientation. Mm-hmm. And that that was a complicated conversation I bet. for a whole host of reasons, because there are schools that are actually doing good work under the radar. And we did change our principles of good practice as well to urge schools to have policies that are required by the federal government to be the floor, not the ceiling.
0: You've mentioned mission several times in in your answers. And I know that you were saying you revised the NAIS mission a few years back now, considering Uh current climate. Are there any thoughts towards revising the mission yet again and bringing some form of diversity, equity, and inclusion into the forefront of that mission statement?
2: You know, it is in the forefront of our vision and our values, yes. where the, the mission is more of how we will carry that out. That was actually at the center of why we changed our vision, mission, and values. The vision is really one that's centered around um, equity and inclusion and I hope pushes schools to a much farther place because access and price is, I I think, a big issue for our schools as well and one that I hope we can take on. I mean, one of the, the other pieces of work that we're doing right now is to help schools reimagine themselves with a different financial model that opens its doors to so many more children. And more schools, I think, are looking at that and interested in that than they ever were before.
0: I wanna go back to the mission piece for a quick second because in a lot of the consulting I do, I talk to schools about really getting at diversity, equity, and inclusion in the mission, because yes, we all have uh, vision statements and values in addition, but when people are looking to get at the meat of what an organization is committed to, go to the mission statement. So Mm -hmm. again, would there be any thought to adding diversity, equity, and inclusion directly to the mission so that people don't have to go to other spaces and other statements to find the commitment to it?
2: We can certainly revisit that and look at how they work together. So it's something that I can take back to our board. They actually are the originators of that work. Certainly I'm part of that process as well, but we can, we can take another look at it. You mentioned early
1: on actually I think before we started recording some new DEIJ initiatives for NAIS and you can only push the schools so much to embrace some of this work but within NAIS what are some of those things that you guys are going to be implementing?
2: Well certainly the systems work is at the base of it because that's what we're really looking for is where are there opportunities for intervention Um, where you might change the status quo. The other thing that we are doubling down on is to really understand the experience of black and brown children in our schools. So we started, I'm going to say about a year or two ago, partnering with a group called Authentic Connections, to do research, and I will be honest, it showed that there's a lot of work to do, but that research also showed us where there were opportunities to really change, and so Sunia Luthar, who is the lead researcher at Authentic Connections, do you know Sunia?
1: I've heard a lot about
2: her research. (laughs) She's really fantastic. And she makes the research very actionable. And we worked with her with a group of pilot schools to understand students experience and where they were really in trouble where they really needed help and support and
0: um, how are they conducting that research.
2: They conduct the research with the individual schools, um, working with them to have students respond to surveys. They don't really just work with NAIS, they work with public and private schools. Particularly what they look at, which is why they were very interesting to us, is um, they look at the effect of high achieving communities on students. So whether they be public or private schools, she sits down with the leadership team, the board, whoever the school brings together to go through the research. And the research is voluminous. You get a lot of good data. One of the things that she called out is what she called teacher alienation. This is something where many students do not feel like they have an adult in the community who they could go to, to confide in if they had an issue.
0: They have issues- that's one of the biggest indicators of student success in a given community, is if they have connection with at least one adult in that community.
2: Absolutely. And I think independent schools often feel like that's a real differentiator for them. It was an eye-opener, but some of the issues that came out tended to be more student-to-student issues that they really needed to work on. Some of them were parent issues. One of the big issues that came out was mom alienation, you know, where mom was not a place that the student felt that they could go to. There was such great expectation and, you know, and certainly what we found through this research, which is very distressing, you know, is not having those connections either to a teacher, to other students, or to a parent, you know, you start to see issues of self-harm really coming out. But, you know, I th- I think there's some easy things that schools can do when you think about teacher alienation. One school was telling me that, you know, they brought teachers together and had them draw lines to students to say, you know, who has actually come to you, confided in you when you have an issue? You know, and, and they were able to figure out that there are quite a few students that, no one had a connection to and it it really started very hard conversations about what happened that that child, you know, was left so alone. So I think it's also through that work that we can make real inroads to understand the student experience at, at our schools as well.
0: And there's also the actual talking to the students themselves on the ground and I mean you're the individual school members and and leaving the space to have those authentic conversations is NAAS talking to its member schools about places that they can start and like here's the top 10 list of things that you guys should be doing tomorrow to start assessing diversity equity and inclusion in your schools
2: That we do. It's somewhat successful. We have, you know, lots of tools that are available to schools, like our assessment of inclusivity and multiculturalism. And we're constantly tweaking that to try to make it better and much more useful for schools. That I would say there has been a huge uptick this year in using that instrument, you know, where you're really letting students down or families down or not ensuring that there is the same experience for all students. So 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 is that that an included
0: mm -hmm. resource by NAS that schools can access that might rival what other schools are doing by hiring um, people to do diversity, equity and inclusion assessments?
2: It's not part of the membership dues. It is an additional price. But it's certainly something that we can think about. We try to keep the price pretty low.
1: Can I go back to the line of questioning about representation? You were talking about black teachers, and you made the very valid point of the indicator of success in schools. Can you talk a little bit about NAS's role identifying and developing black heads of schools and black trustees? And leadership. Leadership of color, yeah. period.
2: Well, I think, first of all, there's too little diversity on boards. So we have really been coming at that very hard. I have my own theory why that is a tough nut to crack. Um, you said I, that, so now you have to tell us. share. <laughs> do share. Um, it's, I think that boards end up often getting built more for fundraising than they do for mission. I think that any board should be built for the mission of the school because a board's job is to keep the school mission in trust. And I think over time, particularly as schools have struggled financially, boards maybe get built a little bit too much for fundraising. And I'm not saying that donors can't be good board members, but I think that you always have to think about who is going to really get and support and advance the mission of the school. I would take it a step further. Boards should really be built for purpose. And you should really think about the greater purpose of your school in society. And um, I think that that's something that we need to reach down and think about that, you know, schools, can be, particularly independent schools, can be a huge lever for positive change in society, but it means really looking at purpose very differently because our independence gives us that opportunity. I don't minimize that it can be difficult to run a school and put these pieces together, but I think if you're clear about that purpose and mission, You actually just have to look at the work of how do you take the boulders out of your way one by one. And that's where I think NAIS can help.
0: I will also say that in in boards that are fundraising focused, they could do a better job of diversifying because there are plenty of people of color with money and with fundraising backgrounds that could help from a fundraising perspective as well. So I don't think that's it's a huge piece of it, but I I don't think it's a piece that precludes immediate diversification.
2: Yeah, I always think it's a great idea to step back and to say, if somebody who's considering this school looks at our board, what would they say about the values of our school? Because, you know, no matter who holds the wealth, you know, one thing I worry about, does it make the statement that you can only have a voice in a community if you have wealth?
1: For sure. You mentioned at the very top of the show, having more resources for parents. You have got to speak to that for me.
2: (laughs) Well, I think, you know, part of what came out of in the research that we did, as well as the systems work, is what an important part parents play in the well-being of the community. So parents are end up being a huge leverage point. Obviously, we know the link between well-being and learning. And if parents are pushing in one way, it can really upset the equilibrium of the school and the well-being of all. I mean, when you look at who's staying and who's leaving in a school, parents are an important part of the ecosystem. In the best of all possible worlds, parents and teachers are partnering for student success but that often goes wrong so how do we get that more right how we went down this road is first to work with rob evans and michael thompson to write this book about how teachers and administrators can work more successfully with parents and when i first read the book i thought I wish I had read this book when I was an independent school parent. I would have done some things very differently. I'd like to think that I was a good partner at the school, but there were probably times when I was not. So we're starting with that uh, parent book, but I think our hope is that from there, we do some learning and find out how we can help parents partner more effectively with schools on behalf of their students.
1: I'm all for that. So... Should parents of color still consider sending their kids to independent schools given where we are? It was a, a conundrum pre black at social media. What's the selling point now for families exploring independent schools and their families of color knowing what we know now?
2: Here's where I think there is an opportunity. And again, you know, the one thing that I would say is schools being independent, they're very different. And I think parents have to look very carefully at the schools to understand their culture. And I love uh, Wendy Mogul's books where she talks about what parents look for in schools and what they should be looking for at schools and you know one of the things that she points out is you ought to go into a school and look at the relationships the adults have with each other and how they interact with each other that tells you a lot about the school I'll tell you what I think the opportunity is right now you know many school leaders are looking to understand what it is that parents and students are hoping for, and to have more of a conversation with them about where it's working and where it's not working. So, you know, I think we are more in that stage than we were a year ago, and certainly farther along than we were 10 years ago.
0: A lot of what our heads of schools are hearing currently is what uh, I mentioned at the top, there is a woke sector that is very clearly stating what they don't want is a focus on critical race theory, diversity, equity, and inclusion, race, period.
2: First of all, it's even hard to know who's speaking because these groups are primarily anonymous, in my experience. Other parents, I think, can get sucked up into this without really even knowing what they're participating in. I truly believe that the vast majority of parents in independent schools don't believe this. I agree. You know, And I, I think that what we really need now are for that silent majority within the school to speak up and ah, I, I think say in, that again <laughs> <laughs> and i think you know they have a lot of power that they don't know they have so is nis doing anything
1: to support those schools that are scrambling to control the polarization they're
2: dealing with yes i mean what we're doing really right now because the the context is different for different schools is we're trying to support them on a one-to-one basis right Um, you know, as much as possible. And we've brought some partners along with us in that endeavor to help give them the tools that they need to really move forward and push past these voices. What does some of
0: that work look like? Like, what are the tactics? What's the help being given?
2: You know, the help, first of all, is to just understand what's going on at that particular school. What we try to do is to understand, to ask a lot of questions, to figure out what we think is the root cause of the problem and to try to then come up with tactics to move forward in that way. And part of my observation with parents sometimes who get swept along People use terms that they don't even understand. Correct. Yes, Yes, like critical race theory. Right. Yeah. So that's one of the tactics that we're using. Is how do you define all these terms? And the next thing that has happened is that I actually think a lot of people have pandemic brain right now. Yes. And I think that that is exacerbating this problem. There's been a lot of isolation people just are not speaking with others that may have different views and if you're in this little echo chamber i think that there are people that can drive fear when there's absolutely nothing to fear you know the other thing that i think is true today that's really hard to manage is social media Mm -hmm. 10 years ago, you could bring people together and talk and have conversations and people could listen to each other. And I also feel like the media has stoked this in some ways.
0: Yes, 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 for sure. We got a little sidetracked on your answer earlier, and I apologize for that. But what do you think families of color should be considering as they are checking out private schools for their students?
2: they should be clear, first of all, on what they're looking for. Then I think they have to ask questions about, you know, what the school's approach is, what kind of work that they're doing, how do they approach Bringing the community together and what does that look like? You know, and I think it's important to ask um, if you can speak to other families of color that are in the school. I think that that's really important to understand their experience. Um, And I mean, I think schools should do that proactively. I was going to say, would
0: you go so far as to recommend that as part of their admissions process, schools start to allow for, like, intentionally create? Those are, some are, but there's plenty that aren't.
2: Yeah. No, I, I, th- I think that only makes good sense. So because I think you, you want to be honest about who you are and where you are, um, because a parent's going to find out when they come that you are not delivering what you said. So
1: well, that's one of the things that they're happy to work with Private School Village on doing, making sure that their ambassadors are always available.
0: A lot of schools are very happy to let other people do the work. (laughs) I'm saying it needs to be built into what they are doing. That's all.
1: Well, I personally appreciate the fact that as a person of color, I can go to one place and I can see all of the schools and I can see all of the people who've made themselves available and I can click on whatever school I'm interested in.
0: I appreciate it too. (laughs) That's why I appreciate Private School Village. and And. Yes. As a parent who is about to embark on looking at middle schools, it says a lot That's to what I was about me to say, that if they don't, if they don't offer those opportunities directly, I, I'm gonna speak for myself, am assuming that they are hiding f- something, and I have no problem with an institution, an institutional leadership that say we're not getting everything right, but and we are working on certain things, and as we're working on them, we're not gonna get them right. But if you avoid it, Yes. Donna, as we wrap this up, can you tell us in one sentence, what would you like our audience to know that NAIS is working on currently?
2: I would like them to know that we are trying as an organization to find the right mix between leading and supporting schools in this work. So leading means not afraid to get out there And for example, I talked about that scenario planning kit to try to imagine what school could look like and how it could be a place of great social emotional health among children where all families feel like they belong and that the community was created for them, not that they are an invited guest
0: amen and we look forward to continuing to learn about the initiatives coming out of nas and we're happy to help partner with you in any of that work well thank you and we are actually
2: hard at work figuring out how you can help us (laughs) 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 so i have some ideas for you as well so
1: awesome thank you again to our guest donna orams remember to rate and review us on apple Podcasts, spotify Mm -hmm. And all other podcast platforms. Learn more at erasedpodcast.com. That's erased with a C. Or on Instagram or Facebook at Erased Podcast.
0: And subscribe. I'm your co-host Colette Bowersin. Sitting right here next to the lovely Lisa Johnson. Thanks for downloading and listening. Tell all your friends. We will see you again in two weeks.